Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. When an elderly Chinese man called Sun Yaoting died in 1996, a brutal tradition lasting almost 3,000 years was brought to an end. He was the last Chinese imperial eunuch, castrated in childhood and sent to work as a servant to the emperor in the Forbidden City, the royal palace in the centre of then Peking, now Beijing. Eunuchs are known to have been part of the Chinese royal court for millennia, but they're also a feature of many other civilizations, including the vast Assyrian Empire, Rome, Byzantium and India. Typically, eunuchs were palace servants, where their sexual impotence meant that they could be trusted to look after royal women. In some civilizations, they achieved great power, commanding armies and acting as spies in senior government positions. And the eunuch singers, known as castrati, took part in services in the Vatican until the late 19th century, and some went on to become stars of that new entertainment, the opera. With me to discuss the history of eunuchs are Karen Radner, Professor of Ancient Near Eastern History at UCL, Sean Tucker, Reader in Ancient History at Cardiff University, and Michael Herkelman, British Academy Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of History at King's College, London. Karen Radner, some of the earliest evidence we have for eunuchs and their activities comes from the Assyrian Empire around 1000 BC. What part of the world are we talking about, and where did that tradition come from? Well, uh, the centre of the Assyrian kingdom at that time was what we know as northern Iraq, so Mosul, uh, an area that is in the news a lot, so I trust that everyone knows where that is. Um, it's, uh, the evidence is um, palace decrees, a collection of um, decrees that various kings of Assyria um, uh, passed uh, from the 13th century onwards, and the decrees um, concern the running of the palace house household, um, and uh, eunuchs are um, attested in the context of the royal women and of caring uh, for um, access and the prohibition of access to the royal household. So that's how it starts. But did it start there or did it come there? Had it been uh, well, trickling, trickling through previous uh, uh, that's, civilizations? That's what we have around uh, 1000 BC, uh, this collection of palace edicts. But by that time, eunuchs have been around for a very long time. Uh, we are talking about an agrarian uh, culture uh, where animals, of course, have been castrated for a very, very long time. We don't quite know when the practice was... So um, do you think they copied the... Cast- they saw that if you castrated sure. an animal, they they got they got fatter, and if you castrated a bull, it was less violent, and well, these I, two were good things. Yeah, I, I don't think that uh, the fattening aspect was <laughs> very important, but obviously, um, especially in the context of a, a royal household... Uh, the pedigree is important, the purity of the line is important, and then it is uh, very uh, important to make sure that only the stallion procreates. And the easiest way to do that is to make sure that most other people who have access to the royal women would be gelded. So to me, it's uh, an obvious solution to an obvious problem. Um, And uh, when this started, we do not know, but by the time it is well attested in a major um, kingdom of the Middle East, it's an old tradition, very, very old tradition. So we're talking about a harem here. 
Um, well, uh, and it, because there's a lot of concubines as well as wives, and the fear is that that there be p persons other than the king interfering with their persons and and um, uh, messing up the royal line of the emperor, and in that case, a leader who is the only hereditary position. The royal yeah. line had to be pure. It doesn't even have to be many women. It's enough that there are some. And uh, the whole point of a royal household is, of course, to guarantee that there is a next generation. Uh, Assyria stands out as a kingdom that really has an unbroken line of succession. Uh, for a thousand years, uh, it was members of the same family that sat on the throne of Assyria. Among the royal ho houses in Europe, it's just Denmark that can boast something similar. So that's quite an achievement. Um, and one has to point out that this is, in effect, a monogamous society. So the only person who had several legitimate wives, meaning their children could inherit, was the king. And that's, so that's a very special household, and therefore the setup of the household is special, and that's where the eunuchs come in. Eunuchs were not a phenomenon that you'd find elsewhere. It was really, at that time, in the late second millennium, a palace phenomenon. So they became servants to these women, and they were servants and guardians. That's they double. were not servants to the women, they were servants specifically of the king. But they guarded the women. Yes. And that was the, their main function. They also, they also guarded the king himself. That's equally important. Not only uh, were they, uh, they were trusted because they couldn't uh, cause trouble in the royal succession, but they were, and that's what the name that the Assyrians used for them, he of the head, they were the personal attendants of the king. Which becomes very important as time goes on. Mm -hmm. uh, Sean Tucker... Uh, they were also a feature of classic antiquity. How did they reach Rome, ancient Rome? Um, Rome really um, started using eunuchs as luxury slaves. Um, the Greeks hadn't really consumed eunuch slaves, uh, but when Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire, um, the, the, the Macedonian kingdoms in the east, in Egypt and in Asia, did start copying Persian custom and started using court eunuchs as well. And eventually Rome... Um, takes up the practice of, of using eunuch slaves as well. Um, and are the they best using them for the same reasons that Karen did? No, no, these are sort of more personal household slaves to begin with. Why, um, well, why do they want them as personal household slaves, then, if not to guard the women? Uh, I think, I mean, there's a lot of Greek influence on the Roman Empire, so I think, in a way, they're copying sort of Hellenistic custom, but also eunuch slaves are very expensive. They're, they are top of the range slaves, so it's a way of expressing wealth in Roman society um, and, and the Romans were familiar with the idea of the eunuch from at least the 2nd century BC uh, because the Roman playwright Terence adapted a Greek play called the eunuch, um, but our evidence really gets much better sort of in the early imperial period um, with Augustus, uh, one of Augustus's friends, the first emperor uh, Mycenas, apparently he was famous for having an escort of eunuchs, and he was incredibly um, rich. So it was a way of expressing um, his sophistication and wealth. So it was almost a mark of celebrity status in the Rome, where it seems to be a mark of the way the court functioned in Syria. But are you talking... Are the, was, is, I is think the emphasis rather different here. I think it's similar, and in fact, it's all about sort of social status. It is a way of expressing power. Maybe in a political setting, it has particular ramifications, but it lets people know how wealthy you are, how important you are, um, and how, how sophisticated you are, I think. Well, I have an impression from reading I've done that in Assyria there were 
it was there were a lot uh, and we're going to talk about the, the way they adapted and, and changed and, but there weren't very many in Rome Rome took it up as as a luxury yes, add-on item that that's certainly the impression i mean we um, we hear about eunuchs in the palace in particular so first century AD, we begin to get more references to eunuchs at court. Uh, Claudius used a eunuch food taster, for instance, and then there are particular favourites. Nero had a favourite eunuch called Sporus, and then Domitian, very famously, had a a eunuch called Irenus, and poets wrote about him, so contemporary poets wrote about him, celebrating his beauty uh, and his his social position, really. So was the aesthetic reasons there were... Yes, I mean, clearly the Romans do think that uh, eunuchs can be very beautiful and attractive and that compared to sort of um, heroic figures from myth or celebrated beautiful boys like Ganymede, for instance. So there is that sort of sexual, aesthetic, physical aspect. Because there was this hairlessness about their unbeardedness. And yes, they, and if, if they're castrated before puberty, you know, they can't grow beards. So, so they're sort of associated with youth, um, and that, that is celebrated in, in these poems. Michael Herkelman, let's go to China now. And some of the earliest references to eunuchs in China indicate they'd been castrated as a punishment. Let's talk about the punishment first. What was that for and, and uh, how is it used? Yes, um, I think something you pointed out just a minute ago um, is very important in this context, um, that achieved, at least in the Chinese context, we have to distinguish between eunuchs... Um, or let let me phrase it in another way. Um, being a eunuch is not a biological condition, it's a political function. So in the Chinese context, we should clearly distinguish between castration as a punishment and the role of a eunuch at the court, because those develop quite independently. Um, the earliest evidence for castration as a punishment comes from um, the earliest written records um, from China. Um, the so-called oracle bones of the Shang dynasty. That's about, um, about the middle of the second millennium BC. Um, and in those oracle bones, which um, usually consist uh, of a set of questions and answers to oracle questions asked by the king to his divine ancestors, um, there um, appear several instances, cases in which um, the king seems to have ordered the castration of prisoners of war from a neighboring tribe. Um, now, then, castration as a punishment enters um, the Book of Documents, which is one of the Confucian classics, um, as one of the five punishments um, among tattooing, cutting off the nose, amputating a leg, and capital punishment. But then it gets abolished quite early in Chinese history, for the first time in the 2nd century B.C., Um, And then after a brief interlude um, um, in the 4th century, it gets reintroduced by um, barbarian nomadic regimes in the north. It finally gets abolished in the 6th century AD. And that's the end, officially the legal end of castration as a punishment. But now castration as a fact for these young boys to to grow up in the court and to become part of the court in much the way that Karen was talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that in China? Because Um, it was well developed in China. Yes, indeed. It was well developed in China and most eunuchs came from um, um, the lower strata of society. 
So um, if not the eunuch himself um, had decided to um, undergo castration, there are some cases in Chinese history where eunuchs are supposed to have castrated themselves, then the decision um, rested with the family. So the family, um, families that couldn't afford um, the Confucian education that was necessary, that was required um, to make an official career, they would decide to have one of their sons castrated um, and send him into the palace in the hope that once he rose to considerable um, to a considerable position of power, he would help his own family, his own kin. Was the function at that court similar to the function that Karen outlined at the Assyrian courts? Um, they first were domestic slaves, you might call them that way, though the term slave in the context of China is a bit problematic. Um, so they appear in the context, but their original function is a bit fuzzy in the sources. It's not referred to that explicitly. What's referred to is that they guarded the um, gates to the imperial harem, or Hougong, the rear palace, at its, um, at it, as it was called in China. Um, and other than in, in ancient Assyria, that was this was not a monogamous society, it was a polygamous society. So we all know Chinese emperors, they had many wives and especially concubines. And really what are we talking, When we say many, what are we talking about? We're talking about hundreds here. And um, the more the number of concubines in the rear palace increases, the more the number of eunuchs increases. So by the end of the Ming dynasty in the 17th century AD, um, we are said to have um, 70,000 eunuchs in the imperial capital. In, in Peking alone? Um, yes. That's an extraordinary number, isn't it? Yeah, it is an extraordinary number. And they're all working, uh, they're all inside the palace? Not necessarily, not by the end of the Ming and not by the end of um, other dynasties that employed um, eunuchs on a large scale, um, because once they are firmly established in um, the imperial palace, where first at the beginning of the dynasty they're usually restricted to domestic service, so they become dog's bodies of the emperor and, and um, his um, spouses. Um, they then gradually take over the management of the whole imperial palace. So um, from um, acquiring, from the acquisition of food of, um, um, through the management of the imperial wardrobe to the imperial um, stables. Um, they then move out um, and spread out into the political administration. Can I go back to Karen Radner on this one? Because um, same in Assyria, it's sort of parallel, isn't it? Well, let's, that'll do for this discussion. Uh, um, they, the, the eunuchs began to be given important positions, some extraordinary important positions, I mean, heads of armies, heads of fleets. Heads of, so how did that move take place? How and why did that move take place? Let's stick to Assyria with you. Yeah. So we are now in the early first millennium BC, so one and a half <laughs> millennia before the situation that Michael just discussed. Um, and um, Assyria is a very long-lived state, as we said. Um, and in the ninth century, uh, this is uh, at the end of a period of reconquest. Yeah, they um, get back uh, regions in the Middle East from uh, what is today Turkey, Syria, 
uh, Iraq, uh, Iran, that they had controlled earlier, and they'd lost them. And when they reconquered and reclaimed these regions, some creative minds set up new principles of government in a way in order to guarantee that this loss wouldn't happen again. Yeah? And they came up with all sorts of interesting new administrative innovations. And one of them is that the eunuchs got a new job description and were sort of basically sent out into the world. Up to that point, they had been uh, a hallmark of civilized palace life. And in the ninth century, they were sent out into the provinces and ruled. It seems a big transition, doesn't it? Uh, yes. You're 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 a eunuch. You've been a eunuch since you was ten, and you're looking. You're, you're got, you've been trained to look after the harem. Let's leave it at that. That's mm -hmm. that's the deal that you've given yourself. But you can seek favors, and so maybe your family will benefit in some remote way. And so, but mostly not. You're shaking your hand. <laughs> okay, fine. I read it in somebody's notes. Anyway, there you go. But. Then there's the move mm -hmm. to being used as civil servants, to be in the army, to be in the navy, to become powerful people. That, that had Was there any? Can you just give us some clue as to why that happened? Mm. Uh, well, th this is not the first <coughs> time that they uh, uh, take up the military function. Yeah, I said earlier on uh, they are not merely the guardians of the royal women, but they are from the start the personal attendance of the king and that also includes guarding the king so they for a long time by that point have been the personal bodyguards of the king which means of course that fighting isn't new at all to the work description of the eunuch but it's still a big step to sort of leave the personal bodyguard function behind and then take up the highest administrative offices far away from court. And that's what happens in the ninth century. And that's very radical. We have to be aware of the fact Is there that a reason? I mean, it's silly, but this mm -hmm. is a conversation and not a 600-page book. Is there <laughs> one reason why this happened then? It's uh, creative minds coming up with new... It's a completely <laughs> novel scenario. But there, you can also... Uh, you know, there are other very, very new things that happen at that time. Why they came up with that, I don't know, but it's a very, very, very good solution. Was there anything similar happening, Sean Tucker, in Rome, in the Roman world? Yes, absolutely. Um, there, there is a change in the in the position of eunuchs in Rome, and it sort of emerges in the third century um, AD with the Emperor Diocletian. Sort of, we begin to see eunuchs as a regular presence at court, a more institutional presence in the role of chamberlains. And that seems to be connected with the changing status of the emperor himself. Initially, the emperor is just meant to be you know, the first citizen, but over time it becomes obvious that he is an absolutist So monarch. he has it begins to have a court like Assyria and China, and once you get that sort of court, you get those sort of units. Yes, yes, there is this idea that it is to do with absolutist monarchies, and it's, sort of, it's a feature of those kinds of systems. Um, I mean, it's, it's a bit complicated, this debate about exactly the, how the process develops, but we be do begin to see it sort of end of the 3rd century into the 4th century. And our first really famous um, court eunuch um, is a man called uh, Eusebius, who was the Grand Chamberlain of the Emperor Constantius What does a Grand Chamberlain mean in those days? Well, and that's a good question. I mean, they're, they're called Chamberlains, but in actual fact, um, they can do whatever the Emperor 
wants them to do. I mean, so what's he, can we find a contemporary reference that's useful for us? Because Grant Chamberlain is sort of Gilbert and Sullivan, really. It's yes. a bit daft. But what is actually going on with the Grand Chamberlain there? Oh, well, he works in close proximity with the emperor. I mean, he might be in the palace, but he might be out on special missions. You know, he's not stuck with the emperor all the time. But he's kind of head of the imperial household, in a way, but but he does whatever the emperor does, so they don't really have job descriptions as such. But has he, has he in, in his own right, does he in his own right have power? Can he hire people? Can he bring things together? Can he do things without too much reference to yes. the emperor and so on? Yes, I mean, that's what the sources you know indicate, that these men are basically running the empire and that they're more powerful than the emperor himself and they have very high social status and have high careers and can be very rich um so absolutely yes and i mean another example is eutropius at the end of the fourth century who was actually a, a consul he became consul in a, is there any sense uh, michael Huckelman, in, in which uh, we've come to china now because you've got china mm -hmm. on i've got china on the right Syria in the middle and rome on the left it's, as I said, it's a bit United Nations, this programme. But in, is there a sense in which the emperor is using the eunuchs to bypass the, the uh, assumed inherited privileges of the rich and powerful, the aristocrats, whatever we want to call them in different... Mm -hmm. different mm -hmm. he's, this is his gang, isn't it? That he can control them, they owe allegiance only to him, uh, and, so, and they're not going to breed. And so he's not going to be worried about their sons uh, and so on, attacking him. Well, once you mentioned their sons, um, 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 that's a very interesting question with regard to China because they um, start to adopt children um, on a huge scale. Um, in but before China they adopt children, early. what about um, why, why were they promoted? So it's um, not only the emperor using the eunuchs; um, it's also the eunuchs um, uh, using the emperor. Um, but you're absolutely right. I think one one um, very useful image um, which um, is laid down in the um, Chinese bureaucracy um, we can use to describe that is the difference between the inner court and the outer court. So in China, the inner court consists of um, the emperor, his spouses, the, his in-laws, and the eunuchs. The outer court... Um, mainly consists of career officials from various backgrounds. In medieval times, it's more an aristocracy. In late imperial times, they go through the civil service examinations. Um, what happens, especially in long-lasting dynasties, is um, quite the reverse to Rome and Assyria. Um, the role of eunuchs outside of the imperial palace never gets systematized. It's never made official that they take on um, any roles outside of the domestic service to the emperor. But um, they take on these uh, functions uh, more or less ex officio. So um, they have a position in a special body inside the imperial palace. And from there, they are dispatched on an ad hoc basis to the provinces to serve certain, fu serve certain functions, yes. Do the emperors in many cases feel very secure, that much more secure than with any other of the, the previous chief advisors? Yes, they certainly feel more secure um, in um, especially the long-lasting dynasties when the inner court and the outer court get more and more alienated from, um, alienated from each other. Um, so what happened, for instance, in the 8th or 9th cent and 9th century 
is um, that after a huge rebellion in the 8th century, the emperors couldn't trust their military any longer. Um, and then they um, allow eunuchs to take on military functions. The reason for that is, is plain and simple. The um, eunuchs would have been those persons in the environment of the emperor whom he knew and could trust <coughs> from early childhood on. He would grow up with eunuchs in the palace. Often they were the only male company he was allowed to have. Um, there's this famous um, or a very, very um, nice depiction um, in Bernardo Bertolucci's The Last Emperor, um, um, uh, when Pui, the last emperor, plays with his eunuchs hide-and-seek, uh, which is dripping with homosexual overtones. So there's really a very strong bond between not only the emperor, but already the crown prince and his eunuchs. Can we go back, uh, Karen uh, Randa, can, can you tell us in Assyria uh, how these eunuchs were chosen and what what methods were used to turn them into eunuchs? Mm. Well, that's all um, not completely clear, but clear enough. The main attraction of the eunuchs uh, was that they were not at least officially affiliated with any of the important families of the realm. So they lacked this association. They may, in effect have been originally part of these families because we do not really know where they uh, sort of got them from. But uh, the moment they became royal eunuchs, how that's old was what the, they how, were. Sorry, sorry. I yeah. just want to get some detail sure. here because we'll be talking uh, about this. Uh, how old would they... What would be the, the general this, age of the time that this, they this were This would have been before puberty because... the like 10 or 11, that sort of thing. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. Okay. We don't quite know when puberty hit... <laughs> people in the or first the general idea. Yeah, we can just yeah, we, let's can say a, 10, we can work with the yeah. rough idea I <laughs> yeah, think, yeah. let's say 10 or 12 in any case uh, uh, Assyrian eunuchs were always shown in art as completely beardless so this implies that uh, they never grew a beard which means that they were uh, castrated before uh, purity one has to point out that Assyrian eunuchs uh, didn't lose their penis they only lost the function of their testicles and so uh, if one compares it with the Chinese evidence, that's a very, very big distinction, really. Why? What's happening in China, Michael? Everything is cut off. Yeah. So this is way more dangerous, of course, uh, whereas, uh, you know, interrupting <laughs> the function of the testicles, that's a very minor uh, procedure. <laughs> Anyone yes. who breeds cat can do it, I, I promise you. My breath away, that one. <laughs> Trust me, it's simple. Uh, in any case, it's Certainly not... Certainly not. <laughs> it is simple, medically speaking. But in any case, um, so um, <coughs> the, the eunuchs that served uh, the king, they were um, castrated before puberty. Um, and uh, all the things that Michael said about the closeness be between the royal household and the eunuchs applies as well because these boys effectively grew up then in the palace. They were trained in the palace. They received the education of future civil servants. The eunuchs um, lacked a past. Yeah, The past before they entered the household was really not important, was not mm. considered important at all. They, among all the other people in Assyria, did not uh, identify themselves with reference to their father's name. Yeah, Everyone else was such and such, son of such and such. They were not. Yeah, That's very, very important. Also, we've already discussed, a key attraction is that they cannot father any children. 
which is hugely important in a society where the existence of a family across generations is one of the key incentives of human life. Yeah, You uh, sort of achieved eternal life by having children who would then invoke your name uh, in regular rituals. Okay, Obviously, that couldn't happen with a eunuch. The royal family instead took on that responsibility. One can describe the eunuchs as almost adopted children of the royal family. But then what happened in China, as you began to say, Michael, is that the eunuchs began to adopt uh, children in order that these children would remember, would do exactly <laughs> what Karen was saying, would have prayers or whatever ceremonies were gone through after their death to keep them alive as their ancestors. Yes, indeed. And just as, as, as Karen was saying, um, like in ancient Assyria, um, kinship and... Um, Family was all important in China, um, and when eunuchs were castrated, they um, even kept what was formerly attached to their bodies in order to be buried with it, um, um, the so-called uh, three treasures, um, kept in a jar because they had to, to show them in regular intervals at the um, imperial court. Anyway, so the eunuchs, they start to um, adopt children at a very early stage in order to bequeath their property and in order to, to continue the family line um, because what they had done or what has been done to them, the castration, was actually um, a breach of filial piety. They were not able to um, continue the family line, at least not biologically. Can I just, I don't to dwell on this, just briefly, this one. Uh, the, the established people, let's say the Confucians, who the civil servants, they ran things, then up come these other people whom they resented mightily uh, yes. and were in a one way at war with. They believed that they were cosmologically improper. Often, often open warfare. Yeah. Though I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that they considered them as cosmologically improper. There was a cosmological um, um, justification for the existence of eunuchs at the imperial court. And um, one of the most interesting things, as previous scholars have pointed out, is that even though the Confucians, especially from the 11th, 12th century onward, um, those um, people we used to call neo-Confucians, they start to rail against eunuchs in an extremely hostile way. But none of them goes as far as to um, propose the abolishment of the eunuch institution. It's seen as a necessary part of um, the monarchy. Sean Tucker, uh, in the, in, when we're talking about Rome, and the, the, there's a religious aspect comes into play here, isn't there, with the with the castration? There the is castration. Yes, I mean eunuchs or castrates can be found in religious contexts as well, and um, the Romans imported the cult of the Great Mother at the end of the third century BC into Rome, um, and this cult apparently came with self-castrating devotees known as the Galli. Uh, some people think they're priests, some people think they're just sort of uh, hangers-on of the cult. Um, and there's a lot of debate about why castration features in religion. Uh, What's your view? Um, <laughs> well, the, the most obvious reason is that as part of the cult, the, there was this figure, Attis, who was the lover of the mother goddess and who had been driven mad and castrated himself. So some people think the galley are imitating that part of the myth. But it, it might be for reasons of chastity or a sign of extreme devotion to the mother goddess, giving up their uh, fertility to the goddess. 
Was there an inter- was there an interconnection with Christianity at that time? The the yes. growing idea of chastity, which Absolutely. was a growth after the first century, or so, as I understand it. But yes, I mean, I mean, chastity. So th- they began to interplay. I mean, what did chastity mean, therefore? I mean, yeah. it's extreme. It might have meant castration. Yes, um, I mean, chastity was was valued in in pagan context too, but definitely in Christianity, and even in early Christianity, we we encounter self castration. Um, there is this famous passage in the Gospel of Matthew where Christ talks about three types of eunuchs, uh, the born eunuchs uh, and the people who are made eunuchs by other people and the people who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. And some early Christians thought this meant that they were meant to castrate themselves, and there are examples of that. We've been hearing about China and Assyria. Is it on anything like the scale in Rome it is to these two great civilizations? Uh, eventually, I would say. I mean, it definitely develops um, in the 3rd and 4th centuries, and then obviously it continues on into Byzantium, as in the medieval Roman Empire. Um, so, so, yes, it's very extensive. Eunuchs can hold uh, specialised positions at the Byzantine court, but also take up other non-eunuch rules as well. I want to go to that in just one moment, just yeah. to finish off a thought with Karen. Were there any limits to the power of, of eunuchs? We've talked about them going out into the world, going to far-flung parts of the empire, running states, running armies, admirals of fleets, we haven't talked about it, but they did all that sort of stuff. Were there any limits? Were there things that you cannot go there? Well, you could obviously <coughs> not become the king of Assyria. In order to be the king of Assyria, you had to be a member of a very specific family, okay, but you also had to be the perfect man, and that, of course, included the ability to father children. So that office was, by definition, not open to them. And then also, they were enabled, really, to take up various religious functions that also required uh, one to be a fully functioning male, so um, while um, they were able to have the, the highest political power um, in religious context, they were automatically uh, excluded from a range of activities that we would disca- uh, describe as priestly. And these were very important activities. Yes, it's a big part of the state. Yes, it's not just a big part of the state. It's an even bigger part, I'd say, of community life, of society. Um, but they were first and foremost servants of the state. So from that point of view, this didn't matter. That made them even more attractive, you know. Can I come back to something you mentioned, uh, Sean, Sean Tucker, uh, in the Byzantine Empire? Um, it, it goes on from the Roman to the Byzantine. It's almost like a baton being handed on. Yes. Not quite a bad image. Uh, but what was the position of Eunice in the Byzantine Empire? Well, I, I think it's more than a battle. I mean, basically, Byzantium is the Roman Empire, so it's just a continuation. But yeah. uh, in Byzantium, there are changes, and uh, the most obvious change is that families, native families, begin to castrate their own children in, in the Roman Empire. Um, eunuchs tended to be slaves and foreigners. Sort of but why a noble family? Did you say noble family? Uh, no, just native families, Sorry. yes. Yeah. Uh, and and you know this is because well one of the reasons is that you know they realise unit careers are good careers you know you get a lot of money from it you can promote your family so there are stories about farmers in Paphlagonia castrating their own sons and sending them to Constantinople uh, to be trained up uh, and to to hopefully get a big career and help the rest of the family. And there are there are cases of you know well known cases of um, eunuchs who are belonging to Byzantine families. Uh, there's Basil the Bastard um, in the 10th century, and uh, John, the head of the orphanage, in the 11th century, and, and they they have you know strong family connections and promote their families. Um, 
Were you wanting to come in there? Can no, you, I, just, you're waving uh, your hand. I just wanted to stress that it was farmers who uh, come up with this brilliant <laughs> idea. They would be, of course, very well positioned to know what they were doing. Um, yeah. Um, we haven't talked about mentioned the effect that this had on the men. That we you've told, said they uh, it's, it stopped the growth of facial mm -hmm. hair and so on. They also tended to be taller and to be uh, plumper. Mm -hmm. So there, we, and we can see on the Assyrian reliefs, we can sit there easily to to be easily distinguished by those factors. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that obviously um, 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 is is a very um, f a physical char characteristic that would make them stand out. That sort of branded them in a way as eunuchs. Mm. You would be able to recognize a eunuch from far away. Um, this is a, a culture where uh, grown males would always wear a very full beard, uh, sort of a Victorian beard or a Hoxton hipster beard, really full beard. And uh, a grown uh, man, a man without a beard would stand out enormously. Then uh, the fact that they are taller, plumper, well, we already discussed that many of them were warriors. Yeah, that, that was actually a, a good thing. We have to always bear in mind, as I said, this is an agrarian civilization, so these characteristics were very well known from cattle, of course. Yeah. Can I come back to you, Michael? Um, I've mentioned eunuchs went out to do great things in fields that we don't with which we don't associate eunuchs. Can you give us a specific example, like Admiral Zheng, for instance? Zheng He. You're, you're referring to um, uh, Admiral Zheng He in the early 15th century, who was... Um, uh, commanding the treasure fleet on several pronunciation expeditions. Pronunciation department let me down there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no okay, where you go. It's no the same worries. man, yes. Um, he was um, captured in one of the early wars of unification of the Ming dynasty in the late 14th century, um, was sent to the um, um, capital, um, was castrated either on the way or when he reached the capital, um, he commanded the um, treasure fleet on several, I think it was seven or eight expeditions during uh, between the years um, 1405. The treasure fleet was a big and important fleet, I presume. Um, I think so. Um, that they You're the expert. <laughs> I'm not an expert on, 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 14, on, 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 on uh, 14th century or 15th century nautical um, history. Um, but that's, I mean, the the fleets are supposed to be to, to have been extremely big um, and extremely impressive when they uh, reached ports in India. Um, they even got as far as Africa and the Arab Peninsula. Um, because one interesting um, um, fact about Zheng He, apart from being eunuch, is that um, he was a Muslim, so he wanted to go to Mecca. Um, do you want me to talk about other famous? Um, no, I think Unix? that'll do. We've got, okay. we've got we've got a hang of it. I mean, if he's, uh, I just wanted to put a person in in place of my generalizations. Now, uh, Sean wants to come in. Yeah, I just wanted to sort of pick up on this this reference to military units because in Byzantium we find them as well, and uh, there's a very famous general in the sixth century, Narses, um, who who eventually defeats the Goths in Italy and becomes basically ruler of Italy. But Byzantium, you know, does use eunuchs a lot uh, to kind of head campaigns rather than be active fighters themselves I would say but to sort of command and interact with their men and to, to be the representative 
of the emperor. So the military role is very interesting. Mm. Mm. And in Byzantium, the association between uh, a, a, begins in a, or maybe continues an association between eunuchs and music. Absolutely, yes. I mean, most people think you know the eunuch singers came in with opera, but uh, clearly, in the ancient world and in Byzantium, they knew the special qualities of the eunuch voice. And um, there are emperors who are interested in church music and who founded monasteries for eunuchs. And the idea is that you know they were employed in church music. But the crusaders, the crusaders who came as part of the Second Crusade um, to Constantinople, did see eunuch choirs um, in in the city. Um, Karen, they fell out of favour. Did they fall out of favour? Was because of the change of empire? What happened? Briefly. Well, uh, in, the, in the 7th century uh, BC, at the end of that century, the Assyrian Empire is gone from the earth, and <laughs> the successor state is the New Babylonian Empire, and they, uh, they, don't, uh, <coughs> they don't continue the eunuch institution in, in, on the scale that uh, the Assyrians had them. Does Eunuchs it continue in China on the scale, for that big scale for a long time, Michael? Um. Well, first of all, um, in China, it simply stops at a certain point. Um, Which is because we point? have um, at the beginning of the 20th century, because we have a, a, a revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, as we mentioned earlier, um, the um, function of eunuchs is closely attached to the role of the emperor or position mm-hmm. of the emperor. And once we don't have an emperor any longer, there's no need for eunuchs. So the last Qing eunuchs, um, among them Sun Yaoting, you mentioned earlier, um, are um, driven out of the um, forbidden palace and um, on the streets. Um, but even before, in the no, no, I'm going to go to Sean now. Yeah, no, just to sort of pick up on the end of of the eunuch phenomenon in Byzantium. I mean, it does seem to tail off towards the end of the empire, into the 15th century, and people associate that with sort of the rise of aristocratic government. But, of course, the Ottoman Empire uses eunuchs, mm. most famously black eunuchs, and that continued on into the 20th century, so it's got a very long history. And the indeed. Catholic Church in Europe is using castrati until into the 19th century. That's and right. Some of those people yes. are turning into famous opera singers. Yes, and I think, you know, even into the early 20th century, mm. I think, yeah. so, yes. Well, um... The eunuch institution does not end with the end of the Assyrian Empire, but it then shrinks back basically to this uh, royal household role. Um, and, you know, um, then we basically pick up again with the Hellenistic period that, that Sean already briefly discussed. But the, the eunuchs stay around for most of known world history. That's the important thing, really. For us today, this is a very exotic, very strange phenomenon, but up to a hundred years ago, you would barely ever be anywhere in the the world where you wouldn't be likely in certain contexts to come across a eunuch. It wouldn't have been an entirely alien, strange phenomenon. And I think that's very important uh, to to emphasize. It's not uh, it's it's very much associated with the state, with the emperor, with the king, but it's not a, an outlandish, freakish phenomenon as such. Well, thank you very much, Karen Radner, uh, Sean Tucker and Michael Herkelman. And uh, next week we'll be talking about Beowulf, where we have the first known dragon in the one of the earliest works in English literature. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I think we covered a wide area there, didn't you? Are you going to tell me what we didn't talk about? Are you? I know what we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about <laughs> India, really, at all. 
but that, that would fit with the with the with these cultic um, castrates that one also has in Mesopotamia. I mean, the the mother goddess, of course, is a Near Eastern deity. And I would really keep that very, very much apart from this mm-hmm. palace and state mm-hmm. context. But with the Indian experience, though, uh, you were obviously... <laughs> <laughs> you're geared up to speak about it, we didn't well. get to it. Uh, it's one of those the things. But it was a very different experience, isn't it? Because it's yeah. in, sort of, in a way, and it sort of still goes on. Yes, it? yeah, yeah, the hedgerahs. Yeah. Um, the hedgerahs. How do you pronounce yeah. it? I must get my pronunciation sorted I mean, on this program. It's, it's not my particular <laughs> specialism, but obviously I'm interested in comparative history of eunuchs. Uh, but yes, the hijras in India still survive today, sure. and they're associated with the religious context. You know, that's the tradition. But there are sort of communities of men who, ideally, do castrate themselves, dress as women, use female kinship terms, um, or kind of kind of outcasts. Are those <laughs> these are the people we see dancing in exotic ways in yeah, the market? That's right, swirling dancing. Yeah. Yes, I mean, there's been a lot of anthropological studies um, of of the hijras. And the Western media is kind of obsessed with them and kind of makes fun of it. But, you know, there are sort of there are serious studies of these people. And they are now recognized as a third gender category. And, 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 and that's, of course, something that, that is not only confined to, to India at all. And uh, But it's a, a very, very different category of castrated men than the one that we've been yeah, discussing, yeah, really. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the key thing is really this uh, this bridge function between the male and the female Six, yeah, that's that's the key thing there. Hmm. Um, whereas the eunuchs that we've been discussing, they were perceived as male, of course, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, male, mm-hmm. entirely male. They were men. They were not seen in any way as effeminate, not at all. They were seen as authoritarian, <laughs> uh, the basically st- strong arms of, of of the ruler. That's why I emphasize so much that they have much more in common with an ox. That, that drags the plow, you know. In Assyrian, to serve the kingdom means to uh, to 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 um, wear, uh, wear the yoke of the state. And so this this metaphor of of the the ox, yeah, who serves the farmer. That's what the eunuch is. Totally different from the hetra. Yeah, but I think even in Rome and in the Greek world and in Byzantium, there is this sort of uh, uncertainty about gender, and and they do sort of talk about or can talk about them being effeminate and like women and sort of not manly. So so maybe that's part of the Greek culture. Mm. That does persist in Byzantium, mm. where they, they do agonise about gender. Though at other times, you know, they do just treat them as men. Mm. And only men could have such political mm. positions right, anyway. Because, yes, just, you, you very much how, do you, how do the Chinese today look back on the eunuchs? Do they, are there any current literature saying, uh, or have they wiped or erased them completely, erased them? Well, that's something I wanted to uh, mention when we talked about Zhenghe, um, or uh, if we look at other um, cases of famous eunuchs in Chinese history, that those usually don't feature in lists, because the Chinese, they like to draw up lists, the ten most vicious eunuchs of Chinese <laughs> history. And there are all these stereotypes of, of, of um, the, the powerful eunuch who monopolized power in the palace, who uh, um, from being the dog's body of the emperor made the emperor his dog's body. Mm-hmm. And then you have these figures like Zhenghe or the famous um, Chinese historian Sima Qian who on, in, in his case became a eunuch um, quite late in his life, I think in his 40s, um, who by most Chinese are commonly not perceived as eunuchs at all. Even if you look up lists of eunuchs in Chinese history... Um, Zhenghe is conspicuously missing from that list. 
I'm not even sure if most Chinese are aware of the fact that he was a eunuch. Um, but most Chinese nowadays look back at it as, as, as a feature of what they call feudal society in, in communist China. So it's something really rather despicable. Uh, here's Tom. He heralds tea. <laughs> there are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4. Podcast lovers rejoice. Meet Pocket Cast, your new favorite podcast app for listening, search, and discovery. Our beautifully designed app gives you more control, makes it easier to find and organize podcasts, and offers powerful tools to customize listening. To hear all your favorite shows, download our free app at pocketcast.com or find us in the Apple app or Google Play stores.